Hi, this is the Cancer Liberation Project podcast. If you've been touched by cancer and have some fear around remaining healthy, you are in the right place. As a 20-year-plus cancer survivor, Haley knows how unsettling it can be to not only hear the words, you have cancer, but also the uncertainty and fear that comes when you have been declared cancer-free. The Cancer Liberation Project was born out of Haley's desire to make cancer less scary for people, to give people hope that they can not only heal from cancer, but live their best, most vibrant life after cancer. Get ready to be inspired with your host, Haley Dubin. Hi, and welcome to the Cancer Liberation Project. Today, I am so thrilled to sit down with Dr. Bernie Siegel, best-selling author, lecturer, and founder of Exceptional Cancer Patients. Also known as ECAP, it is a specific form of individual and group therapy, utilizing patients' drawings, dreams, images, and feelings. It is based on carefrontation, a safe, loving, therapeutic confrontation, which facilitates personal lifestyle changes, personal empowerment, and healing of the individual's life. The physical, spiritual, and psychological benefits that followed led to his desire to make everyone aware of his or her healing potential. He realized exceptional behavior is what we're all capable of. Bernie, as he prefers to be called, is a retired pediatric general surgeon and leading teacher of the mind-body connection. He has been named one of the top 20 spiritually influential living people on the planet by the Watkins Review. His New York Times bestseller, Love, Medicine, and Miracles, revolutionized the way doctors and patients harnessed the power of the mind to heal. Bernie is also the author of 18 other books, including one of my favorites, 365 Prescriptions for the Soul. I look forward to sharing my conversation with Bernie, but before I do, just a couple things to mention. First, a reminder to head over to my website at revivewellness.com to get your free seven top tips to keep cancer away and feel confident in your body again. That's R-E-V-I-V-E wellness.com. And second, I want to take a moment to thank the Carl Felt Center, who makes the show possible. Hi, Bernie. Welcome to the Cancer Liberation Project. I am so thrilled to have you here. I have been wanting you on the show. You are actually, (laughs) I have to show you actually, I have my dream 100 who I went on the show and you were number one. I don't even know if you can see this, but you were number one. So I am so honored and excited to talk to you. Yeah, but I know what you do. You have a hundred of those lists. So whoever's on is number one on every list. I swear you, you could go back and listen. You could go back and listen. (laughs) I've never said that to anyone else, (laughs) but first I'd love to hear from someone who was trained in a conventional scientific setting as a surgeon, how did you come to learn about the mind-body connection when it comes to healing? And I know it was a long time ago when physicians weren't really on board with that. Well, the thing that really changed me was I was at a meeting run by a physician. I thought it was to help cancer patients and it's for doctors. So I went 
And I was the only doctor in the room. Everybody else was a cancer patient. And I, I mean, I just couldn't believe it. Not, not one single doctor in Connecticut comes to learn something about helping patients. The other compliment I received was that my patients came and sat around me. I thought that was normal. They knew me. But I realized later, no, most of them would hide from their doctor because of the way they were being treated and, you know, told when you're going to die, what's going to happen to you. And, and I didn't treat them like that. And this is what changed my life. A young woman who was in the group, I said to her, uh, what made you come to this meeting? What got you here? And these were her words. She said, I feel better when I'm in the office with you, but I can't take you home with me. So I need to know how to live between office visits. And literally that sentence altered my outlook on life because I went back to the office and instead of, you know, just being a surgeon, it was, okay, how can I help my patients live now? That's just amazing. See, all the things I woke up to, you send a hundred letters to your patients saying, come on to a meeting, we'll help you live. I thought, what the hell am I going to do with 200 patients? I told the secretary, tell them it's only for our patients. Don't bring your family and friends with you. Twelve women showed up. I couldn't believe it. Only 12 people were interested in coming to get help living. And my wife gave them a name spontaneously. She said, they're an exceptional group of women. I said, that's what we'll call them, exceptional cancer patients. So we became ECAP years ago. And they became my teachers, literally. You know, because I had no trouble saying, how come you didn't die when you were supposed to? I mean, and they would tell me what they did. You know, from moving to leaving troubles to God to quitting being a lawyer, becoming a violinist, which is what they always wanted. And, you know, everybody had a story about what they did. And I loved it. One letter I got from a patient with pages along, all the things she did when she heard she was going to die. And the letter ends with, I didn't die. Now I'm so busy. I'm killing myself. Help. Where do I go from here? You know, (laughs) I told her, go take a nap. (laughs) But it, you learn from those people. And that's why I never stopped telling stories because, you know, when people show up in the office, you thought we're dead. It was a, a surprise. You know, why didn't you come back? You know, but I wasn't negative in approaching them, but they had had such negative reactions to oncologists and, you know, other doctors that it's like, what the hell's the point of coming back? You know? And it's still the case. It's still people are so scared of cancer. And, you know, I've heard you say when you heal your life, you'll heal your body. Right. And so I'd love you to just talk about that a little bit. The way that I learned to help people, I'd say, what word describes what you're going through? If you had a headache, I'd say, tell me what the pain feels like. Give me a word. Somebody had cancer, they come up with a word. You know, it doesn't matter what happened. But then I'd say, okay, what else in your life fits that word that we need to eliminate to help you to heal? And boy, sometimes their eyes would pop out of their head 
And they wouldn't answer me. They just say, wow, thank you. And they turn and walk out of the office. And examples were pressure. A woman going to be admitted to the hospital, severe migraines for weeks. And the nurse, I'm always talking. I was seeing another patient in the emergency room. She said, Bernie, quiet down. That woman's in severe pain with a headache. So I went in to help her. I said, let me take you in a meditation and try to relax and help you. And I came up with, you know, requests for a word so I'd know what to visualize in the meditation. And she said, pressure. And then I talked about what is the pressure in your life that we need to relieve? Because she wasn't my patient. So I didn't say, what's the pressure in your life? What's going on? You know, I didn't want to intrude into her life. I didn't know her. About 15, 20 minutes later, the nurse came over to me. She said, Bernie, her headache's gone. It's her marriage. She's on the way home to straighten it out. And the other one that impressed me was a woman with cancer. What's it like? Failure. I say, how does failure fit your life? Well, my body failed. I said, that's not my question. How does failure fit your life? Oh, my parents committed suicide when I was a child. I must have been a failure as a child. (sighs) Those things coming out of people, you know, they were so thankful for my talking to them that way, because then they really could re-heal themselves in their lives and, you know, get on with things and really work at healing. Right. I mean, you listened and you asked questions where most physicians don't do that. You listen, you get credit for what the patient hears themselves. I had one woman, this really happened, it blew my mind. Because I'd forgotten about it until I heard a recording of myself, you know, like I'm talking to you. And I said, this woman came into my office. She went on talking for two hours, never stopped. And at the end of the two hours, she looked at me and said, thank you. And I hadn't said a word in two hours. (laughs) said, thank you. That was the greatest conversation I've ever had with anyone. And that's when I realized she heard herself. She was talking to herself. So by my listening, she learned who she was and what she needed to do. And I got all the credit for it and the thanks for it. So I really learned in the office. I forgot who the therapist was who said, just learn how to go "Mm," in 25 ways and you'll be a wonderful therapist. You know, so when people are talking, you go, "Mm, mm-hmm. You know, and they keep talking. And uh, for her to say that was the greatest conversation I've ever had with anyone. And I hadn't said a word. Oh, that's such a great story. And I've heard you talk about a survival personality or an immune competent personality. So how do you describe that? Well, and let me say this. It comes more from psychiatrists when the AIDS epidemic broke out. He noticed that some of the guys were doing much better than the others. So he began to notice, oh, it's a personality. And it was simple things like, you know, having meaning in your life, asking for help if you need it, being able to say no if you didn't want to do something, 
you know, it's about seven little things. And a lot of people, like nurses, if you said to them, somebody in your family or friend asks you to do a favor and you really don't want to do it, what do you tell them? Oh, I would say yes. 90% of the nurses would say that. Say, but that's not healthy. So, you know, again, it's like Monday morning, more heart attacks, strokes, suicides. You know, if you don't want the damn job, quick, get a new one. Find a place you can enjoy going to work. And that's the part the psychiatrists tend to see because they're helping people with emotions and then they notice they don't die. Yeah, because when I started the support groups as a surgeon, boy, did I get criticized from a lot of doctors. You don't know what the hell you're doing. You're not a psychiatrist. Not psychiatrists. They didn't criticize me. It was the other doctors, my friends that I knew, you know, who were internists, specialists, different things. And they were telling me, what the hell are you doing? But one of the psychiatrists said, you know, what point is it going to make to have people meet in a group? They're not going to live longer just because they're meeting in a group. And he used to criticize me all the time. And whenever I was lecturing, he'd be in the audience shaking his head. No, no, no. And he finally decided, I'm going to prove Siegel's all screwed up. I'm going to start a group. And I'll show him it doesn't make any difference. So he got two groups of women, one who had no meetings and another dozen who would come to a meeting with him once or twice a month. At the end of a year, the group he was meeting with had a better survival rate than the other group. So he became one of my best supporters. And I was like, Bernie, you're right. It makes a difference. And he was always there shaking his head yes after that and helping me. I love that. Like what gave you the resolve to to keep going at it because you saw the results? Well, yeah, I knew it was helping these people. You know, it's, I mean, I have from New York Magazine, I keep it here because I laugh at it all the time. From 19, I think it was 89, interview with Dr. Bernie Siegel. But what does it do? say? Interview with the controversial Dr. Bernie Siegel. See, a lot of people just didn't see it. They don't know what the hell's going on because it isn't going on in their life. I mean, I had tons of patients coming into my office who weren't my patients, but they came in saying, I know I can talk to you. You're not a normal doctor. At the hospital, I'd get paged. Would you come to my room, please? They all think I'm crazy. I want to talk to you. And it was about them and their attitude and survival. It was uh, about a lady who had heart lung transplant and woke up saying, I, you know, they said, what would you like to eat? I'll have uh, chicken McNuggets and beer. And then she said, wait a minute, I've never had those. Where'd that go? She realized And in a dream, a young man came to her and said, we're together forever. And he told her his name. And she knew that was his donor. I'm not going to go into all the details, but we found his family because he gave his name. And uh, they said, yes, yes. He died in a motorcycle accident. He loved chicken McNuggets. And she had ridden a motorcycle the first time in her life. They said, oh, that was his birthday when you went for a motorcycle ride. Wow. That's why I say to people, if something mystical happens to you, talk about it. Don't hide it and be afraid people will criticize you. Talk about it. It's so amazing. Do you think this was just innate in you that 
that you listened and and you cared. How I was brought up, as I said, you know, I was a problem because my mother was so sick. And my parents' attitude towards life used to drive me crazy as a kid because I learned what I call the three principles. You know, when you're a kid, you come home from school and you've had a terrible day. Everything's gone wrong. And I'd say to my mother, Ma, I had a horrible day. You know, I'm looking for a hug for her to say, you poor kid, what a terrible school. Well, my mother would say, oh, God is redirecting you. Something good will come of this. And I'd look at her like, Ma, are you deaf? You know, I had a horrible day. <laughs> That's all she'd say. And I would go to my room and talk to God. I'd sit on my bed and say, God, my parents, they don't help me at all. You got to do something. And I was always worried people would come in my bedroom and say, who are you talking to? I mean, if I said God, they'd say, oh, my God, he's crazy. The other one, Ma, I have to make a choice. How should I make a decision about what I do, what courses I take in school, whatever? And my mother would always answer, do what makes you happy. See, that's what the psychiatrists learned about why people survive. They started doing what made them happy. Right. And living your true, authentic life. Right. Yeah. And I'd say, Ma, I need help to make a decision to what makes you happy. And I can't tell you how many cancer patients said to me they put on their refrigerator a sign. Let your heart make up your mind. That's what they had learned. But I'd go to my room again, sit on my bed. God, my mother is doing it again. (laughs) Help me figure this out. And the last that was very profound was my father's father had tuberculosis. This is way back when. And there was no insurance, six kids and a wife, and he died. And interestingly enough, my father was born on a train out to Denver because he was in, you know, the Jewish hospital out there with TB up in the mountains, fresh air, that kind of thing. So my father's uh, birth certificate says unnamed male child because he popped out on the train and they didn't know, you know, like, what's his name? I don't know. He didn't name him yet. He's not supposed to be born yet. But anyway, <laughs> my father went through all kinds of hell because I heard him telling stories about what happened. And then one day he was being interviewed and I heard him say, because it was recorded, um, one of the best things that ever happened to me was my father dying when I was six years old. That night I said to him, Dad, I heard the recording. What the hell are you talking about? You went through hell. How can you say it's one of the best things ever happened? And I never forget him saying, it taught me what was important about life. Mm. We're all here to help one another. That's why to help other people. And that has helped me. And I say that not because of what he did for me, But people, you know, rob you, okay? And I don't mean breaking into the house in a sense, but Bernie, can you lend me money? I'll pay you back in 45 days. And you never hear from them again. And I think if it were my father, yeah, I'd probably spend a lot of time in court suing people. But now I, I really have a feeling of goodness. If I help that person, wonderful. What I consider payback is when these people call you and say, hi, thanks. You're really a friend of mine. Even though they may never pay me, 
we become friends. The only time I feel hurt is when I never hear from them again because they're afraid. What will I do if they call me and will I be mad at them and everything? And I let them know. I send them emails, you know, say, hey, you know, give me a ring. Oh, I love that. Because become family, then they haven't robbed you. You've given them something to help them. Well, I know you've helped so many people over the years. And honestly, you've helped me so much. What is the most important thing you would tell people to do to avoid disease or heal from disease? Well, it's really do what makes you happy. I mean, you want your body to have a live message. Let me explain it in this way so you'll understand. One college student called me, said, my professor thinks I'm crazy. I want to do a thesis on the effect of the body chemistry related to emotions. And I was going to use actors. And my professor says, that's crazy. It won't affect actors. They're only acting. Would you talk to him? So I called his professor and I said, the kid is right. Why don't you let him do it? And we had a nice talk and he said, okay, I'll let him do it. And what he did, one script was this man murders the woman's husband and they meet each other. The other is that they're both happy. You know, something good happens for both of them. And he draws their blood while they're acting it out. And of course, what did you see? His immune function plummets when they're in the crisis and their stress hormone levels shoot way up. You know, those people are more likely to get sick. Whereas in the comedy, immune function goes up, stress hormone levels go down. So literally on Monday morning, where most people don't like what they have to do, we have more heart attacks, strokes, suicides, and illnesses in the population than other days of the week. And people need to understand your attitude, your mind makes an enormous difference in what's happening to you. And that's why I was always trying to teach patients, you know, what I'm saying. See, I did a lot of work with drawings and I'm sort of tone deaf. I mean, yeah, <laughs> see, I'm an artist. The one talent I never developed was music. I mean it. My mother tried to get me piano lessons and the piano teacher said, I'm not coming back anymore. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. My wife's mother, future wife's mother, was an opera singer. I used to play the piano waiting for my wife and her mother shut the windows of the house. <laughs> I said, why do you shut the windows every evening when I get here? Because I don't want our neighbors to suffer the way I'm suffering. With you singing. <laughs> she said, if you're going to keep taking my daughter out, you can't sing anymore in this house. Oh, that's so funny. But I didn't know anything about music. So I didn't know how terrible I was. But art was my thing, drawing pictures. And so I often began to say to pictures, well, because... I drew a picture for Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and I couldn't believe how much she knew about me from an outdoor scene. See, even numbers, Bernie, why is 11 important? What are you asking me that for? You have 11 trees in the picture. And I've been doing the work 11 months with cancer patients. And now I just thought about it. We were married on the 11th, mm. you know, and there are 11 trees. And she had more and more questions and I always had an answer, 
the most profound was, what are you covering up? I said, what are you talking about? You used a white crayon on top of a white piece of paper. You added a layer. What are you covering up? That was vital to me because I was covering up all my pain and emotions as a doctor. You know, I talked about being a portrait painter. I painted my portrait. I got to tell you this because you'll laugh. Every time I come home from the hospital, I paint somebody's portrait. And it totally relaxed me. When I say somebody, our house was a zoo. So I would pick out an animal or one of our five kids and say, here, you sit. I'm going to paint your portrait. And one night I come home. And literally, it was like a stampede. Every animal and every kid was running away from the house. And I mean, we have three or four dogs, four or five cats. I mean, I build platforms, different things in the house for these creatures to climb up and get away from each other. And we had exotic pets the kids got interested in. I mean, everything is running out of the house. And I yelled, what's the matter? Is there a fire in the house? No, we don't want to pose for you. We're tired of sitting. <laughs> I said, okay, all right, I'll put up a mirror. I'll paint myself. I'll paint my own portrait. Okay. They all turned around and went back in the house. It was hysterical. I mean, you wouldn't believe the mob because you have to know, as I say, what the Seagull Zoo was like and for every creature to be running away. But um, I painted my own portrait. But how did I paint myself? Cap, mask, and gown. Completely hidden. So you don't know what's me if you come in the house. Now, the other thing that was fascinating, for some reason, I called it the high priest. And this was in the 1970s, before I shaved my head. And that always bothered me for a while. Why the high priest? What kind of crazy? Then I came across Jung, who said, the reason monks shave their head is symbolic of their uncovering their spirituality. And when I read that, I had shaved my head and embarrassed the family all over again. <laughs> Almost fainted when she saw me in the office. She didn't know it was me. I was looking the other way. I turned around. <laughs> I think you look handsome like that. But <laughs> Well, what's good about it? I tell this to everybody, as I said before, talk about your troubles. Say about your crazy mystic experiences, then people talk to you. So shaving my head got everybody in the hospital to talk to me because they knew he screwed up. You can talk to him about your troubles and things. Because I'd come out of the elevator to go see my patients and people would line up in the hallway. Can I talk to you for a minute? Can I talk to you for a minute? I thought, well, I can see why. Why are they doing this? But eventually I realized it's because they have troubles too. And they know you have them and are covering them up. And I uncovered them. That was my shaving, you see. And I realized, oh, that's why you shaved your head. You were coming out of that cover-up phase and uncovered who you are and all your feelings and how much better your life becomes then. So after you took this class, you started doing it with your patients and having them draw things? Oh, yeah. And let me say, one of my partners, the spiritual guide to Richard Zelzer, after that young woman had said to me, I need to know how to live, I came back to the office on Monday after the weekend workshop. 
And he literally yelled, you're gone. I walked in the office. He yells, you're gone. I said, what are you talking about? You're going to quit surgery. You're not the same man you were on Friday. And there's a lot more being written now about intuitives, you know, who know you and what's wrong inside of you. But I couldn't believe that he could see that in me. I was away two days and he screams at me, you're gone. And he was right. You know, about eight or nine years later, I retired from surgery to help people and speak and, you know, do workshops and things like that. But all those things teach you a hell of a lot when people aren't afraid to talk to you and share those things with you. Right. Do you feel that more doctors are doing this now after hearing you and all your books? And Not enough. No. Some patients are. I'd say more patients are because they're facing the disease or when the doctor or his wife or, you know, or husband get cancer, then they start changing. Because I got a book called Healing Lessons by Dr. Sidney Winnower down at the Sloan Kettering. And it was sent to me as a gift. And I didn't know why. I didn't know him. But as I'm looking through it, I, oh, there's my name. I want to thank Dr. Siegel for all that he's, you know, done for me. And I thought, what the hell is he talking about? I don't even know him. So I called him up. I said, what are you thanking me for? He said, Bernie, I'm thanking you for what you've done. You're with us every night, helping my wife get through the cancer, all the meditations. I want to thank you for that. Now, you see, normally, if you I had gone to Sloan Kettering, they'd say, oh, that's crazy. We can't buy that. How can you, you know? Absolutely. But somebody experienced it, then I became a different person because they were living the experience now and they understood what I was telling people. And and the stories, you know, I learned from patients. See, a lot of them, I never gave people a negative outlook. I mean that literally. I let them know what they had, but I didn't tell them when they're going to die that just kills people faster. And so I learned from my patients and, you know, I just spread that around. And a lot of doctors would say, you're crazy, you're crazy, you're crazy. But when they began to see that my patients were doing better, then they became Siegel's crazy patients. <laughs> and that became a more positive kind of tone. You know, they're crazy because of how well they do when they're not supposed to. And I got, began to get phone calls from Yale and from oncologists in their offices. Hey, Siegel, yeah. I had a patient today who had no reaction to radiation. I thought the machine was broken. I, then I saw your name in the chart. So I knew it wasn't the machine. I said to her, how come you have no reaction to radiation? Her exact words, I get out of the way and I let it go to my tumor. Chemotherapy. Some people saw it as coming from God when I said, draw a picture. They had no reaction to it. And others uh, who saw it as poison or they had every reaction in the book. And the same thing is true. I keep telling people with COVID, you know, when we were getting vaccinated. Yeah, if you see it as this is terrible, oh, side effects, you'll have them all. But if you say, oh, this is a blessing, I won't get sick, this is nice, you have nothing. I don't have any reaction to it, you know, uh, because I go in saying, no, I don't react. And it works. 
And uh, the same thing with many of my patients, you know, they would say to doctors, don't worry, I won't react. And they don't. So we have to remember how powerful the mind is. You know, it's like doing a rehearsal. If you see everything wrong, as soon as the doctor shows up with the treatment, you're reliving all your rehearsals, you know, all your memories. And they found that when people are driving to the doctor to get chemotherapy, their white blood count is already going down on the ride there. Amazing. That's why I was trying to teach people how to survive. And one of the funniest, well, two funny ones. One was a guy who said, I'm going to Colorado to die in the mountains. They tell me I have a couple of months to live. I said to the family, call me. I'll come to his funeral. I really love the guy. A year goes by. I don't get a phone call. So I was mad at the family. And I called him up to say, why the hell did you ignore me? He answered the phone. And he said, oh, Bernie, it was so beautiful here. I forgot to die. <laughs> Those are his exact words. Right. I mean, like you say, the power of the mind is, is so incredible. The tumor is only a symptom of cancer, not the cause. Hello, I'm Dr. Michael Carlfeld. I'm the owner of the Carlfeld Center in Meridian, Idaho. We specialize in cutting-edge integrative oncology care, addressing the cause and not just the symptom of cancer. There are 11 factors you need to address when diagnosed with cancer. To learn more of what they are, get my free ebook when you visit thecarfulcenter.com. Along with the ebook, I will email you a free webinar series where world-renowned specialists will tell you what you need to do to address these 11 factors. You'll hear from experts like Jane McLellan, Dr. Paul Anderson, Dr. Neil McKinney, Dr. William Lee, Dr. Nasha Winters, and Dr. Isaac Elias. Don't miss out on this life-saving information. I also offer a free 15-minute cancer consult where we can go over where you are at in your cancer journey and how the cutting-edge therapies we offer can benefit you. Give the Carful Center call at 208-338-8902 or visit our website at thecarfulcenter.com. You know, when I work with people and and with my experience, because I had ovarian cancer, I really looked at my life and thought, like, you know, what can I do? What what changes can I make? And it, it's not that I was blaming myself for the cancer, but I felt like it has to teach me something. I need I need to make changes in my life because something's not working. And it just seems in line with what you're saying. And I wish people would do that before they got sick, but it often takes. Yeah, to, to look at what's going on. What are your choices? I mean, one of the things that happened to me, the most striking was one morning I got out of bed. I was having dizzy spells and I got out of bed one morning and boy, the room was spinning, what you call vertigo. You know, it's related to the bounce mechanism in the ear. And it was like, wow. And then I said, hey, dumbbell, act like a patient. What's happening? Well, the world is spinning around. Yeah, you are doing too many damn things. You're running all around the world. You're causing the problem. You need to slow down and stop. And as soon as I said that, I realized how true that was. Because when I looked at my calendar, I was going somewhere every day. 
you know, I mean, at first it was fun. I said to my wife, let's go to every state to give a talk. So if I got invited from some state I'd never been in, we went there. And then we started to different countries, you know, uh, flying all over the planet. And then I realized, yeah, it's because of what you're doing. Calm down, get organized and do that. Yes. I know that I've changed. I was invited to um, England to speak. And, uh, you know, when I picture, I'm not going to an airport and going through all. And I said to them, if you can pay me quite a bit of money and give me a private plane, I'd come. And these people said, yeah, we'll do it. I was sort of blown away. But as I started then, because my passport had, you know. Expired. Yeah. But as I started to get organized, to get ready to go, I, I got in touch with them. I said, you know, it's I'm flattered by the invitation, but I really don't have the energy to put all this together and, you know, and come there. I said, if you want to do a Zoom thing, fine, but I can't. So they said, all right, we'll find somebody else to fill in. Right. But that's so important that you listen to your body. And I think so many people don't do that. They don't listen to what their intuition is. So I, not feel guilty. I said, if you can't find somebody else, call me back, you know, but I didn't get a call back. So I know that they've worked it out and everything's all right. Right. Because you just have such a powerful message and people want to hear from you. You know, they say if it gets tiring to be doing things, then learn to say no. I mean, that's part of survival. You know, the immune competent personality. See, that's what one psychiatrist came up with, an immune competent personality when he was working with AIDS patients. Because he said, I began to notice some of them are doing well. It's like me and cancer patients. You know what I mean? So you start asking them questions. Can you say no to things you don't want to do? Yeah. Can you ask friends and family for help if you need it? Yeah. You know, and it went on and on. He had about 10 questions and he called it an immune competent personality. I think that's so important. You know, in a positive way, they would do well. And nurses, I may add, have a lot of trouble. This was one of the questions. You're asked to do a favor by your family that you don't want to do. What do you tell them? And the nurses all say, oh, yes, I'll do it. Yes. Why? You don't want to. Why are you doing it? The healthy answer is no. I I can't do it. Sorry. So you say no to things and you ask for help if you need it, knowing if people need to say no, that's okay. But it doesn't stop me from saying, can you give me a hand? Right. And I feel like healers aren't great with that. I mean, because they always want to help people. They're not real healers then because they get themselves sick. See, that's their excuse. Then they get a day off. Yeah. Good point. One more story. It's always hard for me to stop telling stories. She came in the office looking for surgery. I looked at her record for the past couple of years, and she was having an operation every few months on some part of her body. And I thought, this is crazy. This is not normal. So I said to her, obvious, you're punishing yourself. I'm not going to operate on you. I can help you if you want to straighten your life out. But when I look at your record, I see what you're doing. So if you want to talk to me, come in and we'll keep talking and try to straighten 
your life out. And she looked at me with that, oh, that son of a bitch. He knows what I'm doing. You know, that I'm punishing myself. She said, okay, I'll come in and talk. What happens next? Insurance company, letter. We do not pay surgeons for talking. <laughs> Imagine that. So I wrote to them and said, excuse me, but notice something. I have saved you a fortune. This woman, I said, has an emotional problem. She's punishing herself, getting herself cut up by all these people. You know, it doesn't matter what part of her body. She'd pick out something and keep complaining until they said, all right, we'll operate on your knee. <laughs> we'll say why it's hurting all the time. You know, that sort of thing. And I said, if I keep talking to her, you'll save a lot of money. And whoever was on the phone, I had said to him, look at her records and notice. And he said to me, okay, keep talking. <laughs> so I kept talking and she, you know, resolved her problem. Because I could see the look in her eye when I said, I know you're doing this to punish yourself. And she gave me a look like, oh, wow, he knows me. And even with children, I call it lying to help them be healthier. And my kids would get mad. Dad, don't lie to the kids. I said, wait, I'll tell you. You take an alcohol sponge. The kid sees it. He knows, oh, he's going to stick a needle in me now. I'd say, you're lucky. They made a new little sponge. It numbs your skin and it cleans it. So you won't feel the needle. And I'd rub their, you know, arm. And then they'd say to me, oh, why don't the other doctors use that? Because 90% of the kids said, oh, it works. That's wonderful. The other 10% would say, I felt it. But it wasn't the same, you know what I mean, pain. It was just, I felt it. Then I'd say, oh, it was a bad sponge. I'm sorry. And it's amazing how, again, you can, what I call, deceive people into health. You know, that you've got this wonderful treatment and they get better because they believe in you. And nobody's mad at you for deceiving them into health, you know, <laughs> with some new treatment or something else and uh, they get better. But the mind is incredible. Yeah. Uh, well, Bernie, thank you so much. I just want to ask you one last question. If there's just one thing, and I know that's very hard, that you could say to someone who is listening and just having a tough time with their health, what is the one thing you would tell them to do first? Well, it's following your heart. You know, that's what all these people learned. And for a lot of them, it meant change. You know, when a lawyer learns you have cancer, and I don't make up any of these stories, and who wants him to be a lawyer? His parents, not him. He wanted to be a violinist. So he shuts his office, gets a job in an orchestra, and a year later, he's not dead. See? And the hope that comes with it. So there's so many people like that I knew. Maybe close with this story. My father-in-law needed help due to a spinal cord injury from a fall, lived into his 90s. But you see, again, I wanted to live to be 100 when he was 98. And he looked at me and said, no, I'm dying tonight. 
I'm not having dinner and I'm not having bills. And he died quietly that night at 98. Uh. Um, you see, that's a survivor, if you know what I mean, with all the things that happened to him. Also, his sense of humor. When I told him, give me some advice for people your age. He said, tell them to fall on something soft. Because <laughs> that's how he was injured. But then he said, it doesn't always work. They stood me up in therapy. I fell over on my wife and broke her leg. So tell them to just fall up. And that's what his death was like. No dinner, no bills. He went to sleep. Uh, amazing. On his terms. Yeah. A nurse's aide here said to me, I have a cousin down in North Carolina. Her doctor said she'll be dead in two months. Don't go to Duke. Waste your time. Enjoy the two months. I told her to come up here that you make people well all the time. I thought, oh, my God. You know, I didn't know what, what a terrible thing to put on my shoulders. See? But anyway, she comes up here. She had leukemia. So it wasn't a surgical problem. So I called my oncology friends who... When I first started doing this, criticized me constantly. But then they began to notice his patients, those crazy patients are doing well. So I became their best friend after that, my patients. And so I said, could you come and see this woman? He examined her. He said, Bernie, her doctor's right. She has a type of leukemia. She has maybe a couple of months to live. And it doesn't respond to chemotherapy. But these are his exact words. I know you and your crazy patients. So I'll give her hope. And every two weeks, he would send me a note after she visited him. And they started out with doing well, went to very well. And at six weeks, I got a note that said, she's in complete remission. Isn't chemotherapy wonderful? And I knew that was him and his sense of humor because he had no belief in it when he started her on it. Mm. But they were still learning about Siegel's crazy patients. So powerful. And they learned about drawings, too, from that, because I did a lot of children's surgery. And one of the anesthesiologists made a coloring book for kids. So before we operated, they filled in the whole thing. So, you know how they were going to be when they got there surgery, and then going home. See, it's interesting. Going home, it said with mom and dad, but the anesthesiologist didn't put dad on the page because what's the truth? Dad doesn't come to pick up the kids. Mom does. But on the first page, it said you meet an anesthesiologist. He's someone who looks like he's wearing green pajamas. You know, it was the operating room outfit. I said to him, look at this. The kid drew you in red. Look at the last page. If he draws himself purple, spiritual color, I'm canceling surgery. He's telling me I'm going to die. He said, Bernie, the kid knows something. His mother has muscular dystrophy and the muscle relaxants may have an adverse reaction and could kill him. I said, look at the last page. And he turned to the last page and there was a lot of red and black, which said, I'm hurting and I'm not happy. So I said, all right, we can go ahead. But apparently what the genetic defect did was cause muscles to contract and that increased heat. Uh, instead of relaxing things, they were doing the opposite. And uh, that's the part that changed all the doctors in the hospital because that wasn't me. That was a kid drawing a picture 
and look what came out of it. Mm. And then when does everybody laugh? A kid draws two airplanes in profile. He comes in. What operation are you going to have? I'm having a circumcision. You look at the picture. One is a penis that's been circumcised. The other was an uncircumcised penis, even though he said they're airplanes. But we, everybody in the operating room <laughs> was laughing like hell because when you looked at them, you knew what he drew. Yeah. And it changed, you know, the atmosphere. And I played music in the operating room and everything else. And um, it changed how everybody behaved. And uh, as the nurses always said, your patients are a problem. Really? What is it? They refuse pain medication. I said, what are you talking about? They're not hurting. How could that be? They're not hurting. You just operate on them. Those were the things that impressed me when my patients did well and nobody could explain it. Right. Oh, your nurses must have just loved you. <laughs> uh, but anyways, I, it's time for random round. So are you ready? Anything you say. Great. Fill in the blank. Freedom to you is. Having my, my life, the life I was meant to live. The last show that you binged and loved, that you watched a lot of. It's usually comedy. I mean, I watched the uh, game show network sort of thing. Uh, just people, you know, saying things or even trying to win a million dollars, you know, by picking out those numbers, which I don't know if you know that show. Uh, let's say you have 20 little cases that are held by cute ladies and the contestant picks a case. And if it has a million in it, then that's taken off your list. The versus if it has $2 in it. So you're going through, say, I don't know, 25 cases trying to win a million dollars and all the emotion and hysteria. So I, I just get a kick out of things like that. And I think tuition really plays a role that I'd love to be on that show and pick some of our special numbers. Maybe you can manifest that. Yeah. When you're feeling afraid, what do you do? I'd say confront it and label it. You know, what does it mean to be afraid? What is it you're afraid of? And how would I handle it if it happened? And those types of things. So there's very little that I really fear now in my life. It would be hard if you said to me, pick something you're afraid of. You know, I might say, yeah, I don't want to be in constant pain. But other than something like that, I'm not afraid of diseases or other things. You know, if things happen, they happen. Yeah. If you could have a one hour discussion with someone past or present, who would it be and why? Well, there's several people on the list, but I love Helen Keller, what she taught us in the age of three, blind and deaf, and all her books, My Religion. I mean, she's a teacher because what I've learned, she already knew. So I'd say I'd love to talk to Helen Keller and give her a hug. Um, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was great too. And Carl Jung, you know, Jungians, 
What is your favorite go-to snack? My snack? Oh, it's hard to answer. I have a lot, but um, I used to eat grapes like crazy, but I stopped because, I mean, I was just eating so many of them. What's one simple thing that brings you joy? I think it's talking to people and laughing, Mm. seeing them smile. What is on your nightstand? On my nightstand are books, ones that I'm interested in and that more people are, you know, healing, intuition, all kinds of things. What is one thing you're very grateful for in your life right now? (laughs) The life I've had. But, you know, I'll tell you, it, it, the grateful things are the things that teach you about love. And just my last question, how can people find you and learn more? I know you have a website, so if you want to say what that is. Yeah, the BernieSiegelMD.com. And um, what's there, too, on the right side of the opening page, there are two support groups we run where you can call in from home. Because once COVID came, I couldn't keep meeting with people. So you can call in and the numbers are there. So if you want to call in, write down the number and call in and say hello and whatever issue, problem, you know, you can listen and learn. Oh, that's wonderful. And the other is there are a lot of CDs. I don't talk about them enough, but if you run into problem, get an appropriate CD, you know, whether it's radiation, chemotherapy, surgery, relationships, all kinds of Listen to it, and it programs you. See, so before you go and get treatment, your mind is all ready, and you're not going to have a problem. Such a good point. You know, they're hearing a voice of a guy they know. So it's not just this stranger guiding them. It's a friend. Well, you are a friend to so many people. I feel, even before I talked to you, I felt like I knew you. Um, I just thank you so, so much for being on and you are such a blessing and a gift. So thank you so much. All right. And when you live in your heart, magic happens. So follow your heart. I mean, that's the thing I'd say to everybody, really. That's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. Doing so will really help this podcast get noticed and will help us to inspire more people. And remember, the sky is the limit when you take your power back when it comes to your health.